our show, Herstory, on the right, with Katie and Allie. So normally it would just be Allie and I hanging out, talking about famous women in history over some cocktails, but sometimes we like to talk about women who are writing about Herstory. We have a very special guest here with us today, Pam Munter. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. How special to be here with you guys. Love it. Pam is a former actor and musician. She's an author and a film historian who just published a new book called Fading Fame, colon, Women of a Certain Age in Hollywood. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I was born in, this is not as boring as it's going to sound here. (laughs) (laughs) Anything that sounds starts with, I was born, you know, you're in trouble. Um, In a suburb of Los Angeles and not too far from Hollywood, actually. But nobody in my family or the relatives knew anything about show business. They were very low and middle class, traditional men went to work, women stayed at home kind of upbringing. And I knew early on this was not going to work for me. And I, I figured it out when I started going to see movies. There was another reality out there. It might not have been reality reality, but it was different than what I was seeing in my neighborhood. And I started going to movie after movie after movie after movie as a kid, which saved my babysitting money. And that's where I would be. You know, sometimes my parents would have to come and drag me out of the theater to come home for dinner. And as I got older, I started reading about it. And I was just fascinated with the history of it, the people who were in it. And this was a time you have to remember where there was the only mass media really was radio and newspapers. And so all we knew about movie stars, these big, glamorous, perfect people, came out of movie magazines. And all those articles were written by studio publicists. So speaking of fiction, (laughs) a lot of it was pretty made up. You know, they weren't at all like they were in real life. I didn't know that, of course, at the time. But as I got older and started to read about who they really were, I thought, wow, what a good job those publicists did to let us think they were somebody other than who they were. Well, my educational life kind of tells you a little bit more about me, too. I've been writing since I was nine. You know, once you start, you can't stop. And I have six college degrees, uh, all in different fields. Um, The most recent one really is the one that's most relevant to our talk today, and that's a Master of Fine Arts and Creative Writing and Writing for the Performing Arts. But the one I used most really was the PhD in clinical psychology. I was a card-carrying shrink for a quarter of a century and saw a lot of celebrities and wrote about a lot of celebrities, nonfiction stuff. You know, I didn't make things up then. Reality was pretty daunting enough back in those days. I didn't need to make up stuff. And so now I'm just sort of a plain writer. You know, I did all that other interesting stuff and now I'm settling in for what's left here. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that's perfect. And it's a perfect lead into our discussion about your book. Um, but first, we have to introduce the cocktail that we made for your book. Oh, um, yes. So this is obviously called the Fading Fame. And I was thinking a lot about like old Hollywood and like daiquiris and pina coladas and like the kind of <laughs> banana scene of like the Western United States. And I just got really inspired. So this is two ounces of coconut rum, juice from half a lime, an ounce of pineapple juice, and then you shake that all up, but then you top it with champagne just to give it that final Hollywood glamorous flair. 
Cheers. <laughs> oh, this sounds wonderful. I'm so envious. I don't have one in front of me. <laughs> Well, as soon as we send you the cocktail, you can make them in pitchers and yep. give them to all your friends and family. Be a delicious pitcher drink. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think let's start by setting the scene of your book. You've mentioned that you are writing a lot about Hollywood. So from the golden years through today, Hollywood or the film industry in general has been really hard on women. Can you set the scene for the multiple stories in your book for what life is like for women in the film industry? Yes, certainly. The the ongoing theme here of the book is that women can be very famous and several of the the named people, not all of them are are, are fictional. Uh, some of the named people were indeed very, very famous. Uh, one in particular starts off the book, Mary Pickford, was the first true star in Hollywood in the silent era. And she was one of the founders of the uh, Motion Picture Academy. She had her own studio as a woman. That was quite incredible in the early 1920s. She was one of the co-founders of United Artists, which is a corporation that still exists today in different form and all that. And so it just became something I absolutely had to talk about because she was the prototypical example of somebody who was very famous. Everybody loved her. Everybody knew the name. She was arguably the most famous woman in the world in the 1920s. But she made her mark in films playing young girls. And if you look at her silent movies, you see that here she is, 20, 30, 35, and she's got long, wrinkling, blonde curls, and she's playing 12-year-old girls. <laughs> well, you know, after a while, I think she hit 40, and <laughs> somebody said, Mary, you might want to rethink this, yeah. because some of her, her pictures weren't as successful as they had been. And so she cut off her curls, took adult parts, and the films flopped. They didn't want to see an older Mary Pickford. And her descent into alcoholism and dementia and all those awful things is, is very sad, really. And that happened in real life. It also happens in my short story about her. But it, it was hard to ignore. And she wasn't the only one. I mean, her ending was, was tragic with the alcohol. But, you know, most women who are in the business are hired because they're young and beautiful and willing to engage in casting couch-like behaviors. Let's say tall up for what it is here. And when they're no longer desirable on that level, they're eased out in favor of younger, more willing, nubile models. And there are several women in the in the stories of the book where that happens to them. And there was just uh there's no coming back from that. You can't undo aging, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, and I also I like that you do bring in these real people. Like one of the scenes that really struck me was between uh Doris Day and Judy Garland. And they meet and they're writing and you say they laughed as they shared horror stories. And it, it kind of felt like, but, and then she still says, but there are still things that I know that Judy wasn't telling me. And it kind of felt like they do have this really unique shared experience together of being in this Hollywood era and being stars and kind of having that star fade a little bit. I mean, do you know if these women had a real relationship I don't believe they did. Uh, they worked for different studios. And in those days, you were owned. 
by mm -hmm. the men who ran those five studios. And they may have met, they may have had a conversation. I love the fact that uh, I can imagine them on a train together comparing notes because they were so alike. Yeah. You know, Judy Garland was under Louis B. Mayer's thumb for years and worse. <laughs> and Doris Day was at the behest of Jack Warner, who was a notorious predator for all the time she was in her contract there. And they were married to men who exploited them. So they had a lot in common. I could have done a whole short story about a conversation between the two of them, really. Yeah, it was just a snippet. And I was like, oh, I want to see that whole train ride. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Probably yeah. rescued only by one of the, the husbands coming in and saying, that's enough, girls. Yeah. <laughs> we, we've spent a lot of time um, over the you know, last three years or so that we've done this podcast talking about famous women from Hollywood. And we've done people like Anna Mae Wong and obviously oh. Judy Garland and Hedy Audrey, Lamar. Audrey Hepburn, Shirley yeah. Temple, Ginger Rogers, and they all kind of end up in this same place. And it was interesting that your book was set up in that way, that this isn't a story of one woman. This is 10 short stories and two plays that are hitting on the same idea from a different angle. So can you tell us about some of the women that we're going to spend time with in your book? Sure. I think the one that has fascinated me the most is the story about Irene Selznick. Mm. Uh, your listeners probably won't recognize that name. Her claim to fame in the book is that she was the uh, eldest daughter of Louis B. Mayer, who was the man who ran and controlled MGM for decades. And in the story, I have her coming home, quote unquote, to Bel Air, in this fancy schmancy mansion in Bel Air, because her father has called her and her sister there for a family dinner, just a friendly family dinner. And of course, it's more than that. He has some news. She has some news. She's going to write a book about the family. Now, in reality, she did. But it was after he died. I wish she had the nerve to do it like alive. That might have been fun. But she was interesting because not only did, did she survive that kind of oppressive family, which I describe in the story, but she became a famous Broadway producer. She was the first uh, and originating producer of The Streetcar Named Desire in 1949, which, of course, won a Pulitzer and all kinds of Tonys. And, and to pull out of that kind of an environment and become so successful in an allied field where she knew nothing, really. That, that just was very inspiring to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that story, too, because you're kind of, it all takes place kind of at this dinner, and it kind of feels like a balloon about to pop, you know? And you're just seeing all these people, and they're all just snipping at each other. And you can tell that everyone just wants to leave, but they're not allowed. <laughs> And then you, you kind of get this release a little bit when like she does kind of stand up to her dad a little bit and like kind of ask him about the casting couch and he like doesn't want to address it. And I mean, do we know if anyone actually did approach these men or did they just completely go unrecognized for it? Well, there was who would approach them. I mean, yeah. everybody was, you know, at their behest, they, they were owned by them. So there was no legal, there was just no way to get to them. They pretty much ran amok. They did whatever they wanted to do. Mm. Yeah, the, the book was so much about tackling 
um, misogyny in mm-hmm. the film industry in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, what did you feel as you were writing were the most important things that you wanted to touch on in most, if not all of these women's stories? Well, my first thought was to let people know that Me Too is not new. Mm. That it goes all the way back to the very earliest days of Hollywood. And that while we are very upset about it now, of course, and could take legal action, in those days it was accepted. It was kidded about. It was just one of those things. You knew that was something that was going to happen. There was no recourse. And it was what you had to do to get to the top. It was through the back door of the studio office. I wanted people to know that. I wanted them to know, too, that these women were real. Some of the ones who were real were real. And even my fictional characters, I would like people to identify with. Uh, and I, you know, having been a clinical psychologist for as many years as I have, I'd like to think that my strength as a writer is the ability to get inside somebody's head and create an internal dialogue, which I think is far more important in getting to know someone than the events that overtook them. So you know what they're thinking and feeling while all of this is happening. So we can relate. You know, all of us have been through something pretty close to that one way or another. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, on that point, were there times when you were writing the book and it just felt really hard to get through certain moments? Because I know some of them are really heartbreaking and difficult just to read. Did you have a hard time kind of getting through that writing process? Yeah, I did. Uh, Particularly with the ones uh, whom I actually knew. Uh, You know, I had met several of these women, the real ones and the ones I fictionalized, I knew. The story about Susanna McCorkle was very hard to write. She was a sort of cabaret, jazz cabaret singer, whom I knew relatively well in New York. I'd been to some of her shows. In fact, it was going to one of her shows that inspired me to do cabaret. Um, And so she was supposed to come to my show in New York at the same room where I had seen her. It was going to be one of those magical moments, you know, confluence. And it didn't happen because she had had bad news from her record contract and from the man who ran the Algonquin. And she uh, jumped out of her 16th floor apartment unit in the middle of the night. And that actually did happen. And I, I, it was just devastating. So writing about it, I thought someone needed to imagine what it is she was going through in her head when she was making that decision and what she was telling herself and how she had made that happen for herself. She thought it was the only way out. Yeah, I I loved the blend in the story of fiction and nonfiction because it gave you the it gave your brain the allowance to say this is real, even if it wasn't necessarily an actual historical figure. So how much of those fictional stories were things that actually happened to other people that you had heard or had been through and are like, oh, this definitely needs to be a part of a story? One of the stories is called The Curtain Never Falls, and it's about an older woman in a nursing home who had a long career, and now she can no longer perform because she's too old. She doesn't admit that, but that's how it is. And I got the idea for that story from watching 
a documentary film about Rosemary. I don't know if you remember who she was. She was a singer and an actor and probably best known for being uh, on the Dick Van Dyke show for mm-hmm. many years. She was a character, Sally Rogers, on the Dick Van Dyke show. And in this documentary, I never met her, so I didn't know her, but in the documentary, somebody asked her, you know, what she, how she thinks back on her career. I mean, she's, you know, in the last six months of her life at this point. And she said, you know, sometimes I lie in bed at night rehearsing my act. Oh, man. I mean, that is so powerful and symptomatic of the urge that, that performers have to never let it go. And so I built the story around that, her unwillingness to let it go. And of course, it ends up fine for her in the long run in the story, but, you know, it was uh, irresistible. <laughs> every, every story has a kernel of truth in it. That's one of the smaller ones, but I, I couldn't not write about that. Well, and I think it's one of the things I also really like about your book because, you know, the book is about women of a certain age of Hollywood, but it doesn't just talk about you know, the classic fading starlet, like not getting the roles. It also talks about, you know, sexual misconduct. It also talks about financial misconduct. Like I just was, I didn't know that that happened to Doris Day. And then I I had to Google it. I was like, is this real? Like (laughs) that, like her, like manager and her husband, like schemed all of her money away. And like, I just think it's just on the long list of things that happen to women of a certain age in Hollywood. And I would love to know, do you think the situation is getting better for a woman in Hollywood or do you think it's the same, but with a, you know, new label, new label on it? Well, I'd like to think it's getting better. I think if it is, it's because women are stepping up and telling the truth, which Mm -hmm. they couldn't do before. You know, show business has become so decentralized now that we have Amazon and Netflix, but mostly it's smaller studios, independent studios, and they don't have quite the clout that the five white men had back in the 40s and 50s. And I think that's a good sign. The other thing that's more positive is that women have learned the power of banding together in support systems. And they talk about things to each other. And I don't know that that was true in particularly Mary Pickford's time. She had this good friend and they talked about things, but it wasn't really that kind of a support system that you and I know now. Mm-hmm. You know, where you can get together for drinks with friends and talk about how awful things are or how good they are. Either way, you can tell the truth. I think that's helped. But, you know, the situation for women really hasn't improved that much in society. And, you know, show business is a reflection of society, just as the casting couch was accepted in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. There are other things, certainly misogyny, is widely accepted now in many ways. So things are getting better, but it's certainly very slow. Yeah, and I I really like that you mentioned at the top of the interview how you felt about your connection with Hollywood, with like like those people out there. Because, you know, it, it tends to feel like that sometimes when I'm thinking about Broadway, when I'm thinking about LA, when I'm thinking about even Nashville. It's like, those people are separate. But when I was reading the book, I didn't have that feeling. I had the feeling of, I entirely understand what this woman is going through. Is mm-hmm. that what you wanted for like people to be able to relate with these stars? 
Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And even the one about Ethel Barrymore, where she's uh, in her last years, uh, for those of you who don't know, Ethel Barrymore has a long lineage of uh, acting. The family goes way back. Her brothers were actors. Lionel was an actor. Jack Bar John Barrymore was a great bluefile in the silent era. And all of them alcoholics, by the way. Ethel wasn't, but everybody else in her family was. And the short story that I have written about her, she was really in her decline. She was trying to, she was gone from being a superstar. You know, she has, as you probably know, a Broadway theater named after her. This is no slouch. But in my story, she was doing a character role in a Frank Sinatra, Doris Day musical called Young at Heart, which in fact did happen. And she's having trouble. She's having trouble getting out of the wheelchair to do the scene. She's having trouble remembering her lines. Now, fortunately, many of us aren't at that point in our lives, but you know you will be. And when you can understand how this proud, credentialed woman must be feeling, dealing with a young upstart like Frank Sinatra, who was notoriously impatient with second takes. Mm. Uh, you know, you can, you can empathize with her. So I think even women out of your daily lives are, are, I'm hoping I wrote about them in such a way that you could see who they were and, and appreciate the struggles. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And I would like to get into a bit of like the writing process. So was there a particular reason you chose to do um, two plays rather than all short stories? Like, did you just feel like that was a better creative outlet for those particular stories? I had written the plays and they had been produced and they both had uh, similar themes. Um, one of them is uh, about an old, a middle-aged lesbian who has wanted desperately to get back on the stage, and she tried it. Her partner supported her during those years, and they have issues because the partner is an alcoholic and under examination by legal authorities, so it's a very difficult situation. And the partner, uh, the woman, will do anything to get back on the stage, and then she realizes at some point maybe the costs are too high. And I'm wondering if some of the people in the short story might have come to that conclusion also. You know, it was, it was a good run, but I need to maximize what I have now. And the other play is a dark comedy also. I can't help myself. I just sort of think in terms of dark comedies um, is about two women, older women of a certain age, I guess is a nicer way to put it, who played the same part at different times in their lives. One was uh, on a radio show and one was on a television show. And now they're reading in daily variety that there's gonna be a movie made about this character. And of course, each one thinks they should be cast. And so the play is about what they will do as individuals to get to that part. And one woman will do anything. <laughs> and the other woman realizes, you know, let me think about this. I, you know, I have a good life here. Um, maybe I, this isn't that important anymore. So it had, it's more positive, more upbeat, I think, than the short stories. It's funnier in some ways. But I had to throw it in because the theme is identical. Mm -hmm. right. So was there, this isn't your first book. As you said, you've been writing since you were nine. So is this something that like in your mind, these short stories have been collecting over time? Or did you wake up one morning and you're like, this is what I'm doing? Oh, I wish. <laughs> that sounds magical. I love that. 
I've always been a, a nonfiction writer. You know, I've written dozens and dozens of articles about uh, movie stars and people in films who weren't stars because I found their lives fascinating. But in this program I mentioned earlier, the MFA program, I was a nonfiction maker. And I wrote a memoir during that time called As Alone As I Want to Be, just a little stab. Um, but the professor said to me, if you want your degree, <laughs> you need a second genre. But, oh, man, I'm really in trouble. I don't do poetry. I don't understand poetry. I'm really too old to do screenwriting for 12-year-old boys. <laughs> um, I don't read fiction. I've never liked fiction. So everything I've read and written has been nonfiction. But then I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. I have all this Hollywood trivia in my head. What happens if I take some of the most interesting people and write about them in fictionalized form? And uh, my first story was about Mary Pickford and Frances Marion, her favorite screenwriter. And I just kind of twisted it all on its head. I thought, man, I'm, I'm getting away with this. This is really exciting. So I started writing more stories about women I found interesting. I've always been a Doris Day fan since I was, you know, saw my first movie, which was her first movie. Um, and I couldn't help myself. I had to write about her. And there were other people I, I just was compelled to write about. It was a long process. It wasn't one of these things that... My nonfiction writing is very simple and very quick. This was not. This was two, three years mm. in the making. Not an easy thing for me. But I loved it. It was just so much fun to play with the reality of it. Yeah. And so, I mean, you kind of had the kind of ideas in your head. So what did you do to kind of prepare to really write them? Did you do any sort of research? What kind of research did you do? Did you, you know, go to newspaper articles or other books about them or just your notes from your sessions, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds immodest to say, but so much of it was in my head because of all the reading and research I had already done. There was one instance that's kind of funny. I was writing about Joan Davis and Eddie Cantor, who were big stars in vaudeville and RKO movies, and they each were famous on the radio and on television. Nobody is going to know who they are in 50 years, but they're wonderful people. Um, professionally, I'm not so sure personally, but professionally they were. And um, when I started to write about them, I remembered that each of them had a home within a 15-minute drive of where I live right now. So, you know, I mean, come on, how irresistible <laughs> is that? I Googled and found, you know, old maps and, you know, where it is and all that. And I, in the short story, I have them having a torrid affair. I don't know if that they actually did that, but they had a house one mile from one another. Mm, I mean, the plot thickens, come on. And he had, Eddie Cantor's house, they're both long dead, of course. Eddie Cantor's house had been renovated beyond you don't see any of the 20s, 30s influence there. Joan Davis's house, where she actually died uh, in early 1960s, was under construction, under renovation. And let me tell you, I was so tempted to walk in because it was just the workmen, you know, and I thought, you know, if I could just paint a picture of this house, because the whole story takes place inside her house in Palm Springs. I was like, come on, Pam, shape up here. This is fiction. <laughs> you don't have to get it down perfectly accurately. So I drove off with some regret. 
<laughs> that was pretty much the extent of the uh, research. I did look up pictures of Pickfair, which is where Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks lived in Beverly Hills. I had not been there, even though I was raised near there. <clears throat> By the time I wanted to go, it had been raised. You know, it was gone forever. But there were photographs. And I was a little stunned to find that the, I had written the story a year before that the way I described the living room <laughs> was the way the living room was, which was a little spooky, complete with her glorious, huge painting of herself, of course, over the mantle. So that's spooky. <laughs> it has been, I mean, such a pleasure mm-hmm. talking to you. I feel like I could call you Pam, comma, one degree, comma, two degree, yeah. comma, three degree. <laughs> yeah, we're like one degree away from Mary Pickford and yeah, Doris Day. And it's been a blast. So where can people find you? Where can they find this book? When can they get it? How can they get it, et cetera? Uh, I have a website. It's, of course, www.pammunter.com. And uh, most of the essays I've written are on there. The plays and the books, of course, are not. Um, the books can be found at ta-da, Amazon.com, along with the rest of the world. You know, you just have to click on Amazon and everything comes to you. I think it's probably at the publisher's site, too, which is adelaidebooks.org. And I think Barnes & Noble is selling it online, too. But I think Amazon is your best bet. It's a paperback and uh, ebook. So if you don't like carrying around books like the rest of us, <laughs> get it on ebook. All right, perfect. Well, we can't wait for everyone to read it. It is just so chock full of just delicious and just touching Hollywood stories. And we're just so excited to share this with everyone. So thank you for coming on and talking about your book. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I can hardly wait to try that cocktail. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye